Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's reading comes from 1 Corinthians. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Uh, There's just been a a really sweet spirit here this morning at the last service as well. And uh, as we begin, I just want to say how how grateful I am that you're here. I hope that as you're coming in today with all of the vulnerabilities and difficulties that come with being a person, I pray that as you're here today, you would just feel God's blessing and God's grace extended to you. Uh, Maybe in a way that like you can't fully add up or make sense of yourself. Just as as we study the scriptures, as we receive communion, as we sing the doxology, I just pray that you would experience and feel God's pleasure, God's favor towards you, and no matter what you're bearing with you in life today, I just pray you experience God's grace and peace. Uh, This morning, I want to share a pastoral message and just some observations that I've been making about this community, thinking and learning about this community. Um, I say to folks on our staff and on our vestry, which is like our board, that I think that uh, leadership in general, but, but pastoral leadership is a little bit like being a scientist because you have to follow the scientific method. You, um, you study a group of people, a, a subject, an object, and you make hypotheses about how this group of people is doing, what this group of people needs, where you think this group of people need to go. You make these hypotheses. And then in leadership, you test the hypotheses, and then you get a reaction, and you get to see whether your hypothesis was accurate or inaccurate, in what ways and in what degree. And so you do a program where I preach a sermon based on certain hypotheses, and I'm like, well, that didn't go the way that I was thinking. And you get a sense of how to adjust and what you need to do differently. Well, uh, I want to share an, an insight about this particular congregation of ours from the leadership experiments of the last couple of months in the last six years. So in describing what it means to be an Anglican, I often use this imagery, not original to me, that you've now heard perhaps before, of three streams that flow together to form one river, three streams of influence. This is a review for most of you. Uh, One of those streams of influence is the evangelical stream, And I'm not using it like the Pew Research firm might use it, which is like people who are likely to vote in a certain way. That's not what I'm saying. When I use the term evangelical, I mean it in like a classical sense. It's those people who want to share the the evangel, the good news. The people who uh, believe in the authority of Scripture. 
who want to see folks have a personal response to the gospel, who think that we should be on mission in the world. That stream of influence is very present in this church. We've also got this stream of influence called the liturgical stream, which like is what it sounds like. It's things like liturgies. It's things like creeds. But it's also structure that we've inherited from the church in the past, things like um, having overseers or bishops. All of this comes to us from the liturgical stream. And then we've also got the stream of people that keep us on our toes, and it's the charismatic stream. And the charismatic stream is like, look, you can have all the right doctrine, but if you're not alive with power from the Holy Spirit, what good is any of it? And these three streams together kind of form the Anglican way of following Jesus. And it's important in our tradition that we not isolate or pick any one of these as being like the one that we like, but rather it's the integration of these three streams that form one river that kind of is the Anglican way of following Jesus. So when I've used this language in the past, I've, I've chiefly used it to describe like our worship style or even our philosophy of ministry within this church. But here's the thing that has struck me. As I have been pastoring this church for six years and we've been kind of on this journey together, the thing that has struck me is I've always liked how this language seems to narrate a lot of how we behave, but this language also describes who we are practically. That there are actually groups of people within this church who identify with one of these labels perhaps more than others. And so if I were to take a given issue, like let's say Sunday morning worship gatherings, and I were to pose the question to all of you, what is the purpose of what we're doing here this morning? Or what is the purpose of a Sunday morning worship gathering? Well, those who come from an evangelical background would answer it in a particular way. They might say, well, the purpose of the Sunday morning gathering is to preach the word in such a way that the gospel can be shared and people can come to faith in Jesus. They may say the purpose of the Sunday morning gathering is evangelism. But then there's this other group of people maybe coming from the liturgical stream who say, yeah, but the Sunday morning is for the gathered church. It's for us to, to teach and train and challenge one another to be formed as the church to the glory of God. The liturgical folks would say, no, the purpose of Sunday morning is formation. And then we got the Pentecostal charismatics in the room. They're like, yeah, that all sounds good. But what we really need on a Sunday morning when the church gets together is we need an encounter with the living God. We need to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit that changes everything. This uh, language, by the way, of evangelism, formation, and mission, I'm borrowing from Glenn Packiam, who's an author and, and a friend of ours. Uh, this idea of evangelism, formation, and mission, all of us might answer these questions differently of what is the purpose of Sunday morning. Let me ask you, which one is correct? Yeah, to a certain degree, you think in a healthy church environment, these kind of dynamics are all going to be present, but probably all of us have a mother tongue, or we all have a heart language. This is the one that I'm most accustomed to. This is the one that I resonate with the most. But I want you thinking about those three streams of evangelical, liturgical, and charismatic, not in terms of worship styles, but thinking about them in terms of groups of people, you can appreciate that left untended, those three streams personified as groups of people could actually be a point of division within our church or within a church. But I want to suggest to you this morning that the thing that I think we most 
need is not to stay in our silos, but we actually need the enrichment that comes from being around people of differing perspectives, which means that we necessarily within our church have a tension, not one that is going to be wholly relieved, but a tension that we together are going to have to learn to manage. Now, this was... uh, like almost comically and understandably expressed to me in a question I got a number of times in the last few weeks. Two people asked me this question. The question was, John, how much more Anglican are we going to get? (laughs) I appreciated the candor and your laughter tells me some of you may be wondering the same thing. And the question was like, I think getting at like, okay, what's the trajectory here? Are you gonna end up wearing a clerical collar you know, is it gonna, some, sometimes if you've been to a, an Anglican worship service, it feels almost like a Roman Catholic worship service. Very, say it's like really high on the candle. That's the insider baseball language. <laughs> some folks are legitimately wondering, like, what's the master plan here? Somebody legitimately asked me that, and I'm like, oh, you give me way too much credit. There is no master plan at work. <laughs> Thank you for thinking that that might be true, though. But the thing that I said to them, which I think is true, I said to them, like, I think that if we swim much further up the liturgical stream, we're going to alienate the charismatic and the evangelical streams and groups of people within the church. And I think that our sweet spot as a congregation is developing with God's help the wisdom and the discernment to appreciate where in the middle of that tension ought we to live, where we're harnessing the best of one another's gifts and also able to speak our mother language but there's a necessary tension for us. Um, I, please forgive me, any of you who happen to work in creating religious content or movies or TVs, I generally don't go for it. But The Chosen is legitimately pretty good, if you've never seen it. I'd give it like a solid B plus or an A. The Chosen is, is really pretty good. And then one of the things I appreciate about um, this portrayal of Jesus and the disciples is the tension that's present among the disciples and their personalities. And so you've got Peter, who is totally hot-headed and impulsive, and you've got Mary, who is so sweet-spirited and just grateful for everything that Jesus has done for her. And you've got, you know, Simon the Zealot, who wants to violently overthrow the Roman occupiers, and you've got Matthew, who has colluded with the Roman occupiers in being a tax collector. And the only thing keeping this disparate group of people together is they are all just fascinated and struck by Jesus and how he confounds all of their categories. Now, Jesus certainly could have made it easier on all of them in choosing a less diverse group of disciples. Or he could have had a different pockets of disciples, like this is going to be my okay with colluding with Rome group of disciples. <laughs> this is going to be my just grateful to be here group of disciples. And never, you know, the two groups should meet. Now, Jesus could have made it much easier but he didn't. And it seems to be the case that there's something about the tension and the proximity to him that was critical for his vision of growing up apprentices, that all of those were necessary ingredients. It reminds me a little bit, I often think about this, of, of Lorne Michaels, who's the longtime executive producer of Saturday Night Live, who's found the sweet spot from his perspective in finding like comedy gold. He always staffs his writer's room with half Conan O'Brien types. People who are like Ivy League educated, who've got highbrow humor, and then he balances that with Tracy Morgan types. People who've just figured out how to be hilarious by being hilarious. 
And there's something about the tension between these people with different life experiences, different perspectives, different takes on humor, that in the middle of that tension, there's something really great that can happen. Or I think of um, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I like Doris Kearns Goodwin's uh, biography on him called A Team of Rivals. And uh, Lincoln, after surprising everyone winning the Republican nomination and then blowing everyone's mind by becoming the president of the United States, um, hired all of the people who ran against him, who all hated and resented him, and who all hated and resented each other. And Lincoln, in the strength of his personality with tons of humor, kept this group of people together while simultaneously figuring out how to do the same with the country. And there was something about staying together in the middle of tension that produced some real creativity. Our, 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 our ministry needs that kind of creative tension to really thrive. Paul talks about his own creative tension that he has to navigate doing ministry, sharing the gospel in different contexts. He's, he demonstrates a kind of finesse that, that all of us increasingly need. He's code switching a little bit. He's shape shifting a little bit. He's being a chameleon. To Jews, he's like a Jew. To the Gentiles, he's like a Gentile. Whatever his context requires of him to faithfully present the way of Jesus and win people, that's what Paul wants to do. And the people, those of you who like love winning, you know, like threes on the Enneagram, will appreciate how many times Paul uses this language of winning in the passage that we've just read. Paul wants to win people. He wants to be fruitful in his ministry for the gospel. He says, though I'm free and belong to no one, I made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. So those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I'm not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, I'm under Christ's law. Why did I do this? To win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Paul appreciates his context and he does what he must to win for the gospel. Now, um, since the advent of contemporary Christian music in the church world, folks have been, this like started with the Jesus people movement, bringing acoustic guitars into the church for the first time and blowing people's minds. Uh, churches have been arguing about things like style in, in worship. They sometimes even call it the worship wars. And these have been highly contentious issues in church world. Do you have traditional music or do you have contemporary music? Comically enough, what, what is now traditional was at one time contemporary, but it's all just where you sit in the calendar, where you sit in history. But these were big issues. Do you have traditional or modern? Do you do both? Do you have a worship leader or do you have a choir? Do people wear robes or do they wear skinny jeans? These are hot topics in the church. And this, these worship wars have extended to uh, beyond just music to philosophies of ministry within the church. Um, a hot topic, less so now, but more in the last decade or two, was are you going to do Sunday school, you know, like Jesus intended, or are you going to do home small groups? People fight over these kind of things. What's unfortunate is that people ultimately baptize things that are a matter of preference for them, what's essentially a matter of preference. 
One person has their own style and heart language, another person has, an, has another. What's unfortunate is when these fights within churches have gotten really contentious, is what's unfortunate is that neither group recognizes that the argument itself is sounding the death knell of the church. That both groups have effectively turned their faces from those they should and could reach and stopped asking what their context requires and instead are bickering with one another over what is most preferential for them. Bickering over internal matters and focusing on what's ultimately a matter of preference. And from my perspective, everyone who participates in the worship wars loses. Here's the thing that we need to appreciate in church world. And we are still a relatively new church, so it may be easier for us to be on our toes about this, but we must always be on our guard. When the church is in the service of the church, it becomes inbred and anemic and weak. When the church thinks we exist for the propagate, we exist for ourselves, for our preferences alone. When we turn inward like this, the church grows anemic and weak. There has to be something outside of us that compels us onward. When the church is in the service of God's kingdom, like Paul asking, how can we most faithfully win people for the gospel? Then all of its internal conversations about worship and formation and ministry philosophy are all ultimately for the sake of others. Now, I'm a dude who really loves the church. Um, in high school, I led worship a lot. I'd, I'd lead worship five or six times a week in high school, all over the place. Dude who loves the church. Uh, you've perhaps heard me say my brothers made fun of this, and they literally called me Churchy McChurch. <laughs> so I'm a person who could legitimately, like, spin my wheels having internal church conversations. I do it kind of vocationally. But as, a, as like the ultimate insider, a church dude, I have to appreciate, all of us have to appreciate that the, the church must be reaching beyond itself for its own survival. It was a, um, oh, William Temple who said, the church is the only institution that, that exists for the benefit of its non-members. That's a really good corrective for us. And so while I will, with, in, with joy and integrity, preach a message like I did a month or so ago about thinking about the church as an institution, and I stand by that sermon, at the same time, we have to appreciate the institution must exist for the benefit of others. John Tyson helpfully talked about this. He said, pastors who talk a lot about church often focus on growth and programs, whereas pastors who talk about kingdom, God's kingdom advancing in the world in our time, often focus on mission and people. And we've got to keep that tension alive in the church. The church, if we are to be healthy, if we are to live into God's intentions for us, the church must align itself with the mission and the kingdom, the mission and the ambition of God's kingdom. From time to time, we sing that song by um, Brian and Katie Torwalt and Cody Carnes, Simple Kingdom. It's an awesome song. Your kingdom is simple. It says your kingdom is humble. Your kingdom is coming. Your kingdom is backwards. But then there's this phenomenal line that really strikes me every time we sing it. As it is with your kingdom, let it be with your church. And how sobering to realize that they may not be aligned all the time. 
that when the church exists as an end unto itself, it grows inbred. It will be anemic. It will be weak. But when the church, in a Matthew 6.33 kind of way, is seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness, that is where we thrive. As it is with your kingdom, let it be with your church. There's deep wisdom in that for those with ears to hear. It seems to me that in a, in a polarized partisan city that also happens to be a city with deep, deep roots in church history, including its own chronicles of worship wars and church splits and warring tribes, it seems to me that one of the graces that God may be giving our little community to advance the kingdom in our city is to be a group of people who regard the differences among us as a point of strength and unity and not a point of division. That we actually find our sweet spot together, not in diminishing the differences among us, but in integrating. That we find our sweet spot in the joining of these waters, the mingling of these values, the coalescence of our personalities in true Christian unity. And that there may be something very right, something healing, something conciliar about the Pentecostal dude worshiping right next to the Roman Catholic woman, worshiping right next to the Southern Baptist, worshiping right next to the person who just came to Jesus and doesn't know any of those references. That there's something actually very sweet and very right about that. And that somehow in our love for one another that we're demonstrating to the world that we are Jesus' disciples. I'm doing something that I've perhaps never done before, which is to preach a relatively short sermon. So I'm going <laughs> to... I want to conclude by just offering us a handful of encouragements and challenges as we think about this body of believers that many of us would say is, is our home church, is our people. So I want to offer you five encouragements as we think about how do we navigate a three-streams church? A church where we have different people coming from different traditions, different heart languages, different values. How can we stay together in Christian unity? The first thing I would say to you is to resist and to repent of polarization in the church. To resist and to repent of polarization in the church. My favorite mad scientist is this guy named Edwin Friedman. I reference him far too often. But he wrote a book called A Failure of Nerve. It is incredibly unreadable and very, very helpful to me. <laughs> um, but Friedman says that, that chronic anxiety reaches certain thresholds in a family system, which could be a family, could be a church, could be a city, could be a whole country. That anxiety reaches certain thresholds that, that predictable behaviors show up. One of those is unnecessary either or thinking. So you may take some complicated topic that in all honesty needs nuance, needs to be carefully parsed apart, and instead of, of like a, a thoughtful people gathering in the center, you have the, the extremes warring and screaming against one another. This may sound a little bit like our politics in our country right now. There's no room for subtlety. There are only purity tests. You are all in, or you're like you're with us or you are against us. This is a sign of anxiety. The way that we get out of this chronic anxiety, the unnecessary either or thinking is by asking better questions. One of the things that we can ask as followers of Jesus to undo this anxiety is what is it that unites us? What do we hold in common? We need to actively resist 
the forces inside and outside of us that, that are pushing us into warring camps. That's the liturgical dude. That's the charismatic lady, et cetera, et cetera. Even politically within the church, we need, to, we need to work actively against the polarization that could happen among us. Resist. And at times where we've been part of this, stoking the partisan fires to repent of it. Repent, resist the polarization in the church. The second thing I would encourage us with is to cultivate charity and goodwill toward those of other perspectives. Cultivate charity and goodwill toward those of other perspectives. You know, this, this, I don't know if some of you who have siblings know what it's like where, um, you know, like your, your brother, in my case, may call you an idiot. And he can do that. But if someone else calls me an idiot, he's going to be on their case. And there's something about that within the church that all of us can behave like that. <laughs> but we ought to bank up toward one another that kind of goodwill and fidelity where we know we belong to one another in Christ. And so we're going to step on each other's toes. We're going to irritate each other. But there's like at least a decent balance in our relational bank account with one another because we belong to each other in Christ. We need to save up relationally and emotionally for the times which, when, when brothers and sisters in Christ will disappoint us and frustrate us in the church. And we need to cultivate charity, practicing the benefit of the doubt. Rather than jumping to, this is the worst person I've ever met and they've sought my harm, uh, demonstrating like, I'm going to give you a shot. It's possible that I'm wrong on this. And especially when believers are coming from another perspective, developing charity and goodwill uh, may mean like, it's possible that they know something I don't know and it's possible that they see something I don't see. So I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to be open. This leads us to the next one. We've resisted and repented of polarization, cultivated charity and goodwill. A third would be that we maximize curiosity and we learn the art of asking good questions. For those of us who are, uh, have a ready opinion on almost any topic, a great discipline is to try to ask a couple of questions before you weigh in with your opinion. Some of you are like, Olympic-level opinionators. It's like, wow, you literally heard that topic for the first time, and you have so much to say. That's amazing. Gold medal. A great discipline is to learn the art of asking good questions. Some people are really good at it. Um, my friend Sarah Jackson, some of you all know Jason and Sarah Jackson. Sarah Jackson, I could probably imitate her. I was like, John, do you think that... And she'd fill in the end of the blank. Sarah is the ultimate question asker. And everywhere Sarah goes, she has best friends who think like they are Sarah's unique best friend. And she has learned to maximize curiosity in the art of asking good questions. And within, within the church where we have people who come from diverse backgrounds, different experiences, different heart languages for knowing Jesus, we would do well, rather than taking offense at one another, to learn the art of asking questions and maximize curiosity. Tell me where you're coming from on that. Or what do I need? I feel like there's a lot of context here. Tell me more about you so I can understand maybe where that's coming from. Learning the art of asking questions and just being curious. And I think that there are blessings for us that are hidden on the other side of good questions. And in the church, we ought to treat one another with honor in that way. Maximizing curiosity, learning the art of good questions. 
I think appreciating that there are forces on the outside of us that are trying to pit us against one another. A fourth thing that I would say is that we ought to contend for Christian unity. That ought to be something that we strive to maintain. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. Um, There are all kinds of reasons why it's difficult to get along with others in the church. If we're living as a true network of spiritual friendships, as I've said, we're going to hurt one another's feelings. There are going to be misunderstandings. There are going to be disappointed expectations. But we ought to fight for these kind of friendships. We ought to make uh, church splits and, and us unnecessarily exiting a church like the absolute last thing that happens, not the first thing that we do, withdrawing relationally when there's a misunderstanding. We need to contend for Christian unity. And then finally, on a light note, we need to keep our humor with each other. Humor is different than sarcasm. Sarcasm is is seriousness that's dressed up with an edge. But humor is is lightheartedness, and it's critical for staying buoyant in relationships. There are going to be times that I offend you, that I frustrate you, that we'll do that to one another. Humor is one of the great like, uh, social gifts that we can learn to cultivate and practice with each other. Uh, the great enemy of Christi- one of the great enemies of Christian unity is chronic seriousness. Chronic seriousness is, mm, I thought of something, I don't know if I should say that. I don't think I'll say that. Um, <laughs> the filter worked this time. <laughs> But chronic seriousness is like when you're in your car and you pull into the garage, there are those fumes spewing out. As long as the garage door is open, the fumes kind of represent like the substance of conflict or disagreement or like hard feelings that just get spewed out. As long as the garage door is open and it can be ventilated, no one's going to die. Chronic seriousness is when the garage door gets shut and those fumes are just piling up and they're going to be lethal at some point. You need to deal with the substance of the conflict, but the immediate threat is there's no ventilation in the relationship system. So what you got to do is pop the garage door open and then everyone can begin to breathe. And keeping a light and playful spirit with one another, uh, remembering like, okay, not everything is life or death. I probably, you know, just am tired from the lunch that I had or, or just not taking everything so seriously. We should be serious about life, but we shouldn't be overly serious about ourselves. can be one of the great gifts that we give one another. And one of the things that I observe about men and women that I look up to is that as they've gotten older, they have an easy laugh. And they're not quick. They don't need to defend themselves too easily. They're the first to be self-deprecating, not in a shame-based way, but it's like, boy, I made a mess of that, didn't I? There's something about their easy laugh that to me is a mark of Christian maturity. And I think that if we're to stay together as a church for the years to come, and thinking about us multiplying as a church, that we want to be a church that multiplies health, and one of the the, the first signs of health is can you laugh together? And one of the things that we've lost in this country is the ability to laugh with one another. We can only laugh at one another's expense. My prayer is is for us in the many years to come, God willing, and as we multiply in the years to come, God willing, that we would multiply as a community of health, keeping together these, these kind of diverse perspectives that we have, but doing it in Christian unity, harnessing the gifts that each of our traditions bring in the service of others. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, I pray that you would pour out your spirit on our church. In such a serious world, we want to be serious people, yet would you cause us to overflow with joy and an easy laugh, knowing that things for us are not life or death, because we have already died and we are living into the new and resurrected life of Jesus Christ. Pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to operate from this deep awareness that, that, that we are secure in your kingdom and therefore we are okay. Like Paul, we can say that nothing can separate us from the love of God, not life, death, the heights, angels, demons, anything in all creation. Nothing can separate us. We're fine. And help us from this, this tethered and anchored security live confidently and gently and lightly among our brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we do so, Lord Jesus, as a natural byproduct of it, may others see that we are your disciples. And in being the church which exists for the sake of others, as we are the church together, would you cause men and women to be attracted to your family and place their faith in Jesus? Lord, I know in this room there are people who are, for whom life is just really hard right now. And I pray that you will bless and encourage them. And for all of us who are like, here we go, another week, I hope I got it in me, I pray that as we come to the table, you would nourish us to persevere and to persevere in hope. Pour out your spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.